All right. Um, what I got? A couple things. Uh, oh, uh, last week we talked about uh, these candles and stuff, and you guys went and picked up a bunch of candles for the Tamar Center. We help a ministry that's in Thailand that helps girls get out of prostitution. Part of the way they do that is teaching them skills. They don't sell a lot of candles in Thailand, so they ship them here, and we have some ladies that go and sell them at a bunch of places. And so they're having this, you know, every, in every candle five bucks thing, and so they're doing it again today, back in the back. And last week they made 700 bucks. Awesome. bucks, and all of it. None of it goes to us. It all goes to the girls in Thailand. All of it. Okay, all of it. And seven hundred dollars is like eight months' wages over there wow. for a girl. So, good job. good job. They're still back there. If you want some more this week, they're there. Uh, Make a difference day. Christmas for kids. Did this last service too? I said, make a difference day. Christmas for kids. Uh, you guys gave a lot of money. We helped some kids out. We only have like three pictures with kids because apparently Pam likes to take pictures of us and not the kids. <laughs> Actually, I, she did a great job. She, she, she puts this thing. She put the whole thing together as kind of her little brainchild. It was amazing. A lot of kids got touched. A lot of moms cried, which is always great when moms cry and stuff. But thanks, Pam. Next year, you know what you got to do? You got to find someone to take pictures for you. I know. You know, he was here first service. That was Luke. Lucas should have went. Luke likes free food. I know. I feed him all the time. Okay. So, and we love doing it. That's all I'm saying. All right. Uh, last week we talked about this. So, if you uh, wore your ugly sweater this week for this contest, anybody? I brought one. I brought one. I didn't wear it. Well, no, no, I'm not in the contest. I am not putting it. My wife's grandma made this for me. It's awesome. And I made fun of her, and then she died, so I quit. So. I mean that in a good way. Where's Sean Jones? All right, I'm going to show you the first service winner. She's right here. It's going to look really good on you. <laughs> yeah. Imagine that coming at you. In a, in a dark alley. Okay, so. I, you better get it out now because the message is not this funny. Okay, so. Um, so what I did is I promised you guys this, that whoever wins, you get to go for a trip looking at Christmas lights with James and in his sweet ride. Okay. And, and Mikey Christmased, Christmased, how do you say that? You know, Christmas, he Christmas, he decorated it all up. Okay. So, oh man, I'm, I'm over the mic. Sorry. I think you ran a, yeah, the elf got run over by James Truff or something. <laughs> so, uh, okay, ugly sweater. Ugly sweater, stand up. Brought one, wear it, stand up. Let James see it. Oh, my goodness. Did you buy that? Really? Come up here. Come up here. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry, those of you who brought ugly sweaters, but oh, my goodness. You know what makes it even better is that it's like ten times too big for you. It's two bucks. Two bucks. You got ripped off. Okay. 
All right, you and James, huh? Just to my house for dinner or something, you know, it'd be like normal. I don't have lights up. They're inside. And my, never mind. Okay, we're going to just go here because my message is a little long. So, Samuel, the reading of God's Word. This is Exodus 27, verses 20 and 21. Starts like this. Command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light so that the lamps may be kept burning. In the tent of meeting outside the curtain that is in front of the testimony, Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening till morning. This is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for the generations to come. Let's pray. Father, sometimes quite honestly we read words in scripture like this and they don't actually connect with us and we don't understand what they mean. And I ask that today's like today. We get it. We understand. And that we can be people who live as your people in this world that we show and reflect who your son is to everybody that we meet. Amen. Have a seat. We are going through the Gospel of John, uh, but not today. Not today. Uh, I Usually, seriously, if you've been around me for any length of time, you know that about every Christmas, right? For, I do something a little different. And not just the sweater thing, but something a little different. So we're taking a break out of John. Uh, we're going to get a lot of info this morning. It's all going to be on the screen as we go. So just kind of stay up. If you get lost, tap your neighbor and go, what's going on? They'll be like, I don't know. I'm totally lost. But we're going to go with this. Uh, it's almost Christmas and we all say, woohoo. Okay, there you go. Yeah. So we're going to talk about Hanukkah. Seriously. Uh, now, Christians think that Hanukkah is like the Jewish Christmas, but nothing can be further from the truth. That is not what Hanukkah is about, except where it's kind of been influenced by Christianity. And so I want you guys to know a bit of history, and typically you enjoy things like this every once in a while. Uh, I told you a while ago that I believe that uh, Christians need to know the heritage from which they came from. They need to know that. And sometimes we forget that Christianity is or should be distinctly Jewish. And Christianity is what Judaism should have become. You know, when, when we trust the, the revealed Messiah, Jesus Christ, you know, Christianity is what Judaism should have become. And what Judaism, uh, what we have done with Judaism, we start to paint these broad strokes of apathy towards Judaism. And we need to uncover and, and remember and go back to some of this because it's a very deep heritage that we come from. Uh, if you ever a chance to dialogue with someone who is a Jew, you'll quickly find out that there's two different types of Jews. There is a Jew who actually believes in the Old Testament, in the Torah, in the, in the law, and the things that, that God spoke. Then there are people who call themselves Jews who don't really believe in anything. There are atheists who call themselves Jews. The people who became the Jews were originally and still called the Hebrews. This uh, probably came from a word called hipparu. Hipparu. And it meant the dusty ones because they came from the mountains and the deserts. They show up, you know, covered in grime and dirt, kind of like that guy from the Peanuts cartoons, you know, little cloud around him. They go, oh, the hipparu. The, see, the Hebrew, the Hebrews, see, it just kind of flows. Like, and, and then the dusty ones, and so that's what they kind of thought. But the, to themselves, they, all, they called themselves the children of Israel. Uh, after Moses wrote the Torah, they began to call themselves the people of the book. Uh, the, the original children of Israel were the children of a guy named Jacob. He has 12 sons, and around, I'm not going to go into all the history, but basically his 12 kids become the 12 tribes of Israel. God comes to Jacob at one point and changes Jacob's name to Israel. You can read all about it in Genesis chapter 32, which I want you to actually turn to. I'm going to give you a lot of history encapsulated, and then we're just going to run through a little bit of 32. Jacob is a man who spends his entire life running from God, but God pursues him just like God pursues Jonah. 
Uh, and in Genesis 32, these events conspire in, in Jacob's life where he eventually actually seeks God and he is the initiate, initiator of that. Up until this point, God is the one who initiates with Jacob and then Jacob does this now through prayer. And this is kind of how this works. You have Jacob. Uh, he's a twin with a guy named Esau. Esau is covered in furry red hair, so he's like uh, Elmo. <laughs> or or uh, an Elmo that would be like the size of a Wookiee, I, I suppose, because, you know. <laughs> So that's what his brother looks like. His brother comes out first. And so what happens in Jewish families is that means that his brother is supposed to be, become the patriarch eventually of this family, that, that the family is supposed to go and follow what this guy does. But God says, no, I want the firstborn blessing to go to Jacob because God usually likes to stand stuff on its head. And so, no, it's going to go to Jacob. Well, Jacob and his mom don't really trust that God's going to kind of get the job done as his dad, uh, Isaac, actually loves Esau a lot and wants Esau to get this blessing. So one day, Jacob and his mom hatch this plan, and they, they go and they trick his, his stupid wookie brother and his blind old dad into giving Jacob the blessing. He actually goes up and he says, and his dad says, who is this? And Jacob says, I'm Esau. Ah! You know, <laughs> it's my best Chewbacca. I don't know how it works, but you know, he says, yeah, I, I'm, I'm Esau. And so his dad gives him this firstborn blessing. Well, Esau, gigantic, angry man, decides, he took my blessing, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> so Jacob does what most wusses do, and he runs. Okay, his mom goes, run away, and he says, okay, and he, and he runs. He runs to his uncle Laban's house. At his uncle Laban's house, he actually ends up in slave labor to Laban for a little over 20 years. 20 years. He ends up getting two wives, eventually he gets sick of Laban, decides, I want to go back home. So he starts going back home. On the way home, his brother Esau is like, oh, uh, here comes my brother home. So he grabs his guys and he goes out to meet him. And so Jacob is thinking, my brother's going to kill me. It's like that back to the future. He's going to kill me. Oh, never mind. Golly. So he's going back home thinking his brother's going to come and kill him. And what he starts actually to man up here. He starts to take responsibility for his family. And so he sends his family to safety on one side of the stream and he stays on the other side. And this is Genesis 32 starting in verse 22. There you go. Okay. Uh, after he had sent them across the stream, that's his family, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And at this point, God shows up to Jacob. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Now, for you, uh, this would kind of be a nightmare. You're sleeping outside under the stars, and you get up to go pee again. And this guy shows up behind you and smacks you in the back of the head and starts wrestling and beating you up until morning. That's like a nightmare, right? Jacob's probably almost 100 years old right here. A hundred Imagine that. It's like, boom, oh, my arm just fell off. What are you doing? You know, Jesus shows up. He starts wrestling with this guy. Anybody ever been in a fight? Anybody? Like a, like, like a good fight. Not like, oh, I fought with my wife this morning on the way to church. You know, I, I shouldn't say good fight, you know, but, but like a fight. You know, it, it's like you're on the playground as a kid and, you know, they took your marbles and, you know, we're going to town. Or, you know, something's happening. You need to protect somebody, and you get in the middle of it to make sure somebody is protected. Or, I mean, fighting is... Exa- I don't know if you ever fought, but fighting is completely exhausting. I like watching UFC. I don't know if anybody else does. I, I watch these guys fight. I mean, if you've ever fought, you throw 10 blows, and you're like... <gasps> and you're just tired. These guys fight, like, all these rounds. I, I understand why boxers, like, in the 15th round, are like, just hang on me. We're going to sit here like this the whole round. I get it. Because fighting is completely exhausting. Well, this guy comes, and it's Jesus, and he's fighting with him all the way until morning. He's 100 years old. He's going to town. 
I mean, Jacob is distressed. He's worried about getting killed by his brother. He gets up in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden Jesus shows up and smacks him and says, let's go. And they start to fight. Jacob is running scared his entire life. Jesus shows up at this point to teach him how to be a man, how to man up. I think sometimes God does that to us. We run scared. We don't know how to stand up to things. So God sends hardship in our lives, and he teaches us how to stand up and fight, how to stand for truth, how to do what he calls us to do. God doesn't grow you, you know, by, by, by walking up and giving you flowers and, and brewing you tea and, and saying nice little things to you. God shows up and he gives you hardship. He shows up in a wife beater and starts smacking you around. And I'm sure you're going, my life now makes sense. I, I got it. I, it, totally, it totally does. So they wrestle all night. And what I think is amazing is that Jesus humbles himself to wrestle on Jacob's level. He doesn't kill him, but he wears him out. Jesus is teaching Jacob courage and fortitude and masculinity. It's like you ran from your brother and you ran from your uncle and now you're crying. Oh, please save me. We'll learn how to stand up and fight, you little girl. And there's a lot of guys that are like this. They need God to do this in their lives because they have not figured out how to stand up for the truth and stand up for the faith that they believe in. Jacob has to go home. He's got to take care of his family. He's got to deal with Esau. He's got to found a nation. And so in order to do that, he has to toughen up. God's men have to have stamina. God's men have to have fortitude and conviction to live and stand for these promises of God. So if you're a dad, you know, I, anybody, any dads in here? Any dads with boys? All right. Wrestle with your boys. Get out there. You know, girls are like, let's have tea. And then your boys are like, punch me. You know? And you're like... Look for the neighbors. Okay. <laughs> but, when you, but when you fight with your boys, right, you get down on their level, right? You, you, you fight with the strength they have. You're not like, look, I'm so much bigger. Boom, you're through the wall. Ha, ah, I win. You know, they reach up and they're like, ah, and you grab their hands and you're like, ah, oh, oh, you're so strong. What am I going to do? And what is, this is what Jesus does with Jacob. He goes to fight with him, and he fights with the strength that Jacob has. He doesn't like, I'm God. Oh, i got to start over. What do I do? He fights with his strength. I didn't think it was going to be that funny, but okay. You know, he fights with the strength that he has. That's what he does. It's like with dads and kids. And at this point, you know, he doesn't know that it's God, but Jesus shows up. He's like, I'm going to push you. You're going to push me. You're going to learn how to stand up and be a man. Jesus teaches him to be a man. So verse 25, it says, When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. And so Jacob wrestles. He holds his own. He's like, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to run. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to fight. So he's like, I'm a hundred. I'm a little crazy, but I, but I did it. You know. And so then Jesus walks over and he goes, boom, and touches his hip. Bam, his hip goes out of socket. And I think that Jesus does this to go, I could have crushed you at any time. But I didn't. I fought with you to make you a man. But he reminds him, you need to respect me because I could crush you. And Jacob walks with a limp his entire life. And yet he remembers the God who could have crushed me decided to make me a man instead. That's what he does. He knows that God loves him. And says, but Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And this is good. This is Jacob standing up for his family. Bless me. I, I, I want to you know, follow. I want to be this guy that I'm supposed to be. And so in verse 27, the man asked him, what is your name? And this is very important because this reflects all the way back to when he lies about his name to his dad to get the blessing. What is your name? He says, Esau. And so Jesus says, what is your name? And he says, says Jacob, he answered. He finally takes responsibility for who he is. He is becoming a man. 
Jacob means trickster or deceiver. He's probably been a believer about 20 years at this point, but he finally becomes a man. Because women birth males, but God makes men, usually through hardships and conflict. So then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. He gets a new name, becomes a new creation. Israel literally means one who struggles with God and men and overcomes. Not that you win over God, but that with God you will prevail. You got a limp, you got a fat lip, but you made it. And from now on, his name becomes the name of a nation, the nation of Israel. Through this man comes Jesus, who will save us all. And from this time forward, the word Israel appears in Scripture 1,800 times, whether referring to this man or to the nation. And that tells you that God is completely faithful, because God uses every circumstance in Jacob's life to conform to the person of dignity and purpose that he needed to be. Everything that comes to you and I either comes from the hand of God or is sifted through the hand of God. Jacob just found that all the hardship in his life, this moment right here, and from this time on, he becomes the father of a nation, becoming the Jews. His sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. So you following? Yes. Good. You're with me. So what's the deal with Hanukkah? Got a little bit more before we get there. Okay. So Israel, these 12 tribes, they end up becoming a nation. Uh, God always speaks to his prophets and says, you know, God is your king. God is your king. God is your king. And because God wants to be the king of this nation. He doesn't want them to be like everybody else who has human kings that, that fail all the time. He says, I want to be your king. But the people keep looking around them going, oh, but everybody else, everybody else is like this. And everybody else, we want a king like that. And so God eventually says, okay. And so he gives them a king. The first guy they get is a guy named Saul. Very long story in this. I'm not going to go through it now, but it's a great story for someday. It's in the back of my head now. I'm brewing on it. After Saul sins grievously against God, he's replaced by a once shepherd boy named David. Everybody heard of King David? Right? Okay. Uh, after David, David's son comes. David's son's name is Solomon. You guys heard about King Solomon? It's like, oh, yeah, I watched that freaky movie about King Solomon and his traps and the gold and the mines. Don't worry about all that garbage okay just king solomon is his son i got a map here Ta-da. okay now in this map what you have is is you have saul and you have david and you have solomon this is what we would call the united kingdom the united kingdom it's like i'd like some tea and crumpets please you know, I, I got a terrible british accent whatever okay it, it's not like that okay it's not like the uk and britain okay but we call this the united kingdom because all 12 tribes are underneath one ruler all 12, it's not that bad <laughs> All 12 tribes underneath one ruler. Okay, so what Solomon does in his reign, though, is he is building palaces and a war machine and all this stuff. So he's got slave labor and he's taxing people into poverty. It's terrible. So when he dies, his son's name is Rehoboam. Rehoboam comes into power. And, Rea, and people go to Rehoboam and they go, your dad taxed us into poverty. We don't know what we can do. We, can you please lessen this burden? And Rehoboam says, No. In a very crass way, actually. I, we should talk about that one day, too, because it's funny. But uh, in a very crass way, he says, he says no, I'm going to tax you more. You thought my dad was bad? I'm even worse. And so what happens in Second Chronicles chapter 10, verse 16, it says this, When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel, look after your own house, David. Stick it in your eye. That's what they say. Yeah, somebody bounced. It's like a leapfrog game, isn't it? <laughs> so, so all the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still rolled over them. King Rehoboam sent out Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor. So he takes his gun and goes, well, you go get my money anyway. Sends the guy out, but the Israelites stoned him to death. 
That's a good way to go, apparently. Uh, King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. Oh, he's dead. I better get out of here. Hops in his chariot. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. This is about 900 B.C. when this takes place. And so at this point, you have... I think i got another map, right? Oh. Ta-da! Okay. Uh, this is what we call the divided kingdom, the divided kingdom. And so you have the northern ten tribes who are, who, they're, they're rulers from Ephraim. Then you have the southern two tribes, which is Judah and Benjamin. Divided kingdom. Okay, you following? Good. Okay, so this is what happens. In about uh, 722 BC, the Assyrians come in and they conquer Israel. Israel is the northern ten tribes, Judah, the southern two tribes, okay? So the, the Assyrians come in, they conquered Israel, not Judah. In 605, the Babylonians start their conquest of Judah. And about 587, 586 BC, they complete the conquest and, and completely conquer it and haul everybody off. The word Jew actually comes from Judah, who was one of the original 12 sons of Jacob. When the remaining Jews were expelled from the land, you know, long about 600 B.C., the tribe of Judah was the last to go. The tribe of Judah is the one which most present-day Jews actually take their descendancy from. And so thus they were known as Judeans or Jews. Exactly. See, you guys are quick. You guys are quick. In perspective, 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar becomes king of Babylon. King of Babylon. And the Babylonians invade Judah. And when they come in, they haul off some guys, like say, like a guy named Daniel. Okay? You got Daniel in the lion's den? Oh, yeah, I watched the Veggie Tale. Whatever. Okay. So, yeah. Sometimes the theology in the... Never mind. Okay. So, uh, you got Daniel. And King Nebuchadnezzar, one night, he has this dream. And he wants his magicians to interpret this dream. And so the magicians go, okay, well, tell us the dream. And he goes, no. You tell me the dream and then interpret it. And they're like, oh, Crap, <laughs> what do we do with that? And nobody can do it except Daniel. So Daniel comes in and he says, this is what you dreamed. You saw this statue. And in Daniel 2.32, it starts like this. The head of the statue is made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. And I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar was like, Wow. That's what I dreamed. That's amazing. So what does it mean? Verse 39. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. So Daniel, in 600 B.C., prophesies what's going to take place for hundreds of years on the kingdoms of the earth. It is completely amazing. Babylon is the head. The Medo-Persian Empire is the chest and the arms. Alexander the Great. The Greeks are the thighs. The legs and feet are Rome. Okay? It's amazing. So in 586 B.C., the Babylonians go in. They destroy the temple, and they haul off the rest of the Jews to Babylon. The prophets of God had also foretold this centuries earlier that this would take place. They also prophesied that Judah would return after 70 years to come back and rebuild the temple. We call this the exile. Uh, in Babylon, the exile actually lasted 70 years. Once again, it's pretty amazing. During the exile, uh, the Medes overcame the Babylonians, and they were themselves overcome by the Persians in 539 B.C. And this is what's beginning of what's called the Persian Empire, the Persian reign. During the Persian Empire, the Jews were granted to go back and rebuild their holy temple. You can read about this in Nehemiah and Ezra. The Persian Empire is eventually replaced by Alexander the Great. We've heard about him, right? 
Okay, I had history. I don't know what that means, but okay. Thus, Judah and Samaria eventually come under Greek rule. Alexander the Great, he keeps it tight, but it was pretty benevolent in most cases, reign over what he covered. Alexander, he attempted to create a new universal culture. And what this culture did, he wanted to, was to bind everybody together. So what he does is he, is he takes Greek religions and Eastern philosophy, and he puts these things together, and he starts building temples so people will all do the same kind of thing. He builds gymnasiums throughout Egypt and throughout Judea to spread these new teachings. And in a gymnasium, you would go when you would work out, kind of like Gold's Gym, gymnasium. Okay? It's, it's, you'd go when you would work out because they, they would look at and worship the perfect form. So you'd go there to try and get the perfect form, but you would work out naked. Yeah, I'm, I don't want my gym membership anymore. I'm sorry. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, when, when this started to happen, there were some Jews. They became known as the Hellenizers. Uh, they became such a part of Greek culture that they started going to these gymnasiums. They wanted to be part of this. But Jews had typically been circumcised. And those, there were some Jews that actually went and tried to have an operation, historically speaking, to undo circumcision. So that when they, if you know what it is, you're like, oh, if you don't know what it is, you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I have a great picture one day I'll show you. Um, as an example, not, not of... Okay, so, so they go, and, and they just, because they want to be able to work out, and they want to be able to be part of this culture and this perfect form, so this is what they did. So the, so the Greeks come in, and, and everybody wants to be part of this culture and, and this kind of thing. Uh, after Alexander's death, uh, the kingdom can't really stay together, so it fragments, and it gets divided between three of his generals. Uh, they fought constantly. Judea and Samaria fell temporarily under the rule of the, e of the Egypt Greek Empire, known as the Ptolemaic Empire. So I'm going to take a little left turn right there. Okay, just kind of leave that in your brain while I take a left turn and go somewhere. So, where's Hanukkah? It's coming. It's coming. We're almost there. Anybody have a Catholic Bible? If you have a Catholic Bible, you ever looked at one, there's actually extra books uh, in that Catholic Bible. We call these books the Apocrypha. Uh, in, in acceptable translations, huh, uh, you have the 39 Old Testament books, uh, the ones that are in your Bible. There, there is no debate on these books whatsoever. They are, they're accepted. Jesus used them. The disciples used them. The early church used them. Jews used them. They're accepted books. There's, and the last book in your Old Testament is Malachi. In Malachi 3.5, or uh, three one four five. Uh, God says, "I'm going to send a prophet. The next thing that's going to happen is I am going to send a prophet, and that prophet is going to prepare the way of the Lord. Okay, and the, and then God's going to come to the temple. We know the temple was destroyed in seventy A.D., so we know that this happened before seventy A.D. And so God says, right here at Malachi, the next thing that will take place is my prophet will come, which will bring the Messiah. So between Malachi. And Matthew, no scripture is written. But we have these 400 silent years. And what is written is these books called the Apocrypha. Anybody like Christian books? Good ones, not like lame ones? Okay, Christian books? Okay. I got a couple thousand books. Uh, I, I love books. Uh, the Apocrypha were kind of like books like this. They had some history and some fiction, some practical living, some end time speculation. You know, all going to be left behind and you know, stuff like that. Uh, they're like the Christian top ten, kind of like C.S. Lewis and, and stuff like that. They're widely known but not accepted as scripture. They are read, but they are not quoted as scripture or used or known as scripture. But in the Apocrypha is the history of Hanukkah. All right. So, 
Go back to where we were. At this point in history, uh, the Jews have been through a lot. Kingdom after kingdom after kingdom runs over them. Alexander the Great is dead. Palestine is like the stepping stone to most major skirmishes. Ptolemy V was king of the Ptolemaic Empire, but he's weak. And so what happens is the Syrian Greeks come in under a guy named Antiochus III, and they wrestle Judea and Samaria away from him. And his kingdom is known as the Seleucid Empire. Just say that a lot. It'll sound... Nice. Uh, Antiochus III's successor had a very creative name. His name was Antiochus IV. <laughs> kind of rolls that way. Uh, he was not subtle. He was not philosophical at all. He's just a power-hungry nut. So in order to consolidate his power, what he does is he forces all people under his rule to assume the Greek religion, all the gods and everything. And this worked in every place except for who? The Jews. Exactly, because God does not allow syncretism. He does not allow himself to be mixed with other gods. He is the only God. There is no other. He is the God for all people. There is no other. So Antiochus, he fears he's going to lose political control of Judea. So he enacts these barbaric, barbaric punishments. If anyone's found teaching or studying or practicing Judaism, they die. In 168, 167 B.C., Antiochus IV goes into the Jews' temple in Jerusalem. He erects a statue of Zeus in the temple. And he commands the Israelites to start making sacrifices to Zeus in their temple. He commands them to sacrifice pigs in their temple. Completely unclean animals. You would never find a pig anywhere near the temple. And he wants it because all this is done to get them to lose their allegiance to their God and their national identity. This is actually also prophesied in Daniel uh, 500 years before, Daniel 11.32. It says, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. This is Zeus in the temple. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will, resist, will firmly resist him. It's interesting, when Jesus speaks about the future fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., he actually uses the same wording. In Matthew 24, 15, he says, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, would then let the reader understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And so this is exactly what happens. The, the Romans came in later, and they actually tore the temple down to pieces. This is, this is just like this abomination that causes desolation, and the Jews flee to the mountains. You go back to Antiochus. Antiochus forced the Jews to bow before Greek idols. He outlawed circumcision, and he killed anyone celebrating the Sabbath. So in the apocryphal book of 1 Maccabees, you read this historical account. This is 1 Maccabees 154 to 62. And it says, They also built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah and offered incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets. The books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. They kept using violence against Israel, against those who were found month after month in the towns. On the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifices on the altar that was on top of the altar burnt offering. According to the decree, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised and their families and those who circumcised them. And they hung the infants from their mother's necks. But many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their heart not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than be defiled by the food or to profane the Holy Covenant. So there's this village. It's called Modin. It's not far from Jerusalem. And as Greek officers did, they would go into villages. They'd bring with them an altar and some pigs. And they walk in and they say, okay, all the villagers gather together. 
Okay, here we are. Now, we have this altar. I want you to bow down to Zeus and eat some of this pig meat. Every village. These both activities forbidden to Jews. The officer grabs a guy named Mattathias. He is, a, he is a Jewish priest to take part in this ceremony. And Mattathias, he's just done. He's done. His people are being killed. Children are being murdered. Women are being murdered. They're defiling his God day after day after day. And he's just sick. And so what happens is the guy says, do this. And he says, no. And like typically happens, there's some wuss dude that goes, well, I'll do it. And Mattathias goes, I'm done. Pulls out his sword, kills this guy. And while the, the officer's going, what? Kills him too. Mattathias has five sons and the villagers jump on the soldiers, kill the soldiers. Mm-hmm. Sounds like Braveheart, doesn't it? <laughs> Freedom! <laughs> so they have one of those, whoo, whoo, whoo. They go run up to the hills. All these Judeans who are waiting for something to happen start fleeing to the hills and they start meeting up with these guys. Mattathias eventually dies, but his son Judas Maccabee, Judas Maccabeus, he starts leading this army. And he goes battle after battle after battle against these people. Eventually, after a bunch of... You can read all about this in the first Maccabees if you actually want to read it. Uh, he, they eventually retake Jerusalem. They eventually retake the Holy Temple. And when they walk into this temple, they find weeds growing in the temple, which is... This should not happen. And so they see this and they tear their clothes, which is like this deep sign of mourning. They tear their clothes. All things of value are broken or missing or defiled. And so Judas and his men, they take down Zeus. They throw him away. They actually take out the altar that's there and they build a new one. And then they want to have a dedication ceremony when they finish this new altar. And this goes back to Exodus 27, which is where I started with you guys at the very beginning, 20 and 21. It says, Command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light, so that the lamps may be kept burning. In the tent of meeting outside the curtain that is in front of the testimony, Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening till morning. This is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for the generations to come. So, for the celebration, they wanted to light this dedication lamp, this menorah. But there's only enough oil to last one day. And it takes eight days to make new oil. So they light it anyway. And the oil lasts for eight days. And that's Hanukkah. That's Hanukkah. I mean, it, Hanukkah is, is something, that's so much, it's something that's so much deeper than, you know, Adam Sandler and David Lee Roth lights the menorah, you know? <laughs> It is not a Jewish Christmas. Uh, today, Jews celebrate, like I said, Hanukkah for eight days. You know, and, and menorahs now actually have nine candles. They have, they have four on each side and then one ever-burning candle that's in the middle of them to symbolize that. It, it doesn't commemorate the military victory. What it commemorates is the miracle of the oil. Do you know why it was important why God said, I want this light to burn so that everybody can see? Because God, metaphorically, all throughout Scripture, calls himself light. That he burns and he wants people to know that. And that was a symbol that our God is alive and he burns. And when you know him, he burns in you. This deep burning that makes us into the people that we are supposed to, do, supposed to be. Even today in, in Jewish temples, there's a thing called a, a near tamid. And it hangs above the ark in, in most synagogues. It is associated with the, with the symbol of God's eternal and imminent presence in our lives. 
throughout Scripture. God is called love, you know, living water. Uh, he's called truth and, and light and holy. And everybody will open up to John, uh, chapter 8. So I'll bring you back to John today for something. Again, throughout the Old New Testament, God is representative of light. He calls himself light as one of the metaphors for, for who he is and what he does because he shines in our darkness. And when Jesus comes, Jesus takes on this. Uh, John eight twelve it says, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Go to John chapter 1, verse 4. John 1, 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light that shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. See, the same light that burns, that same light that came and, and revealed himself to Jacob, that same light that saw a united kingdom, that same light that saw them through a divided kingdom, that, that same light that brings them back from exile, that same light that burns something as simple as oil in the temple for eight days was to show that those who clung to him, that he had not forsaken them. He had not left them. If you are a believer, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, when your world seems dark, just like that light burned to Jacob, just like that, God through His Spirit will burn in you. Hanukkah, it, it means nothing if it is not connected to Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Christmas means nothing if it is not connected to Jesus Christ, the light of the world. What, do, what does Christmas and Hanukkah have in common? Nothing. And everything. And everything. The light of the world. I mean, in the New Testament... What's, what's really interesting to me is that God says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are now God's temple. And so this light that shines now is supposed to burn in you. Because Jesus came and he died and he rose and the Holy Spirit makes us into the temple of God so that people see and know who he is by that light that burns in you. God takes his holiness uh, seriously enough that he burns something as simple as oil for eight days. And through the Holy Spirit, he burns in you forever. Forever. It is a wondrous thing that the God of the universe would dwell through his spirit in you and I. For me, that's the miracle of Christmas. That is the miracle of what all this history, all the Jews, everything they went through, it leads up to Jesus Christ burning in us so that we live and burn before the world so that there is a light in the darkness that this world lives within. And that light is Him reflected through us as He burns in us. You are called to be that miracle. You are called to be the miracle me it's amazing it's one of the reasons we come to communion every single week because communion reminds us that not only did jesus come and live as a man he also died and the way his body was broken we break the cracker and we dip it in the wine of the grape juice that represents his blood that was shed for us and then he rose so that you and i can live in this new life 
He imparted his spirit to us so this, so that the oil, the spirit, can burn in you and I. We worship God through prayer. There's the elders in the back of the room. And if you guys are like, man, I, 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 don't, I don't feel God burning. Well, maybe you're not a believer and you need to submit yourself to Jesus Christ today. Maybe you need to understand the meaning of Christmas today and have the elders pray with you. It's important. We worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the side wall in the back of the room. We give because God gave to us. And we worship God through song. The band's going to come up. I'm always, I always take forever to get there, don't I? Sorry. And we're going to sing songs about redemption, about God, the light, stepping into our darkness so we can see. And we're going to worship God through fellowship. We're going to hopefully hang out and talk to each other. And I think there's some more cookies left over from last week in the back. But the whole point of this fellowship is so we can spur each other on to live in this life that God calls us to live. I mean, history means nothing if we don't learn from it. Nothing. And what we learn from it is that God is faithful, that Jesus is the light of the world, and He wants to burn in and through you. And so we show the world who He is by how we live. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we as a people ask that you would help us to understand you burning in and through us. That we would not take it for granted everything that you have done. That we would trust you more and more. And that we would understand the goodness that you have bestowed upon us. And that we then too would be your people that live as your spirit burns within us. I ask that not only would we burn for you, but our heart would burn for others. And that we would live in such a way that we do not bring dishonor to your name. That we learn and grow and love as your people, as you burn and live through us. Amen.